Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 10th, 2022. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released September 1st, 2022, and can be now pre-ordered on Amazon. Peter, that's only, uh, what do we have, six weeks away yep. or so until that comes? Excellent. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So did you guys have a nice week off? Yeah. <laughs> it's been been two weeks since we spoke, and I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, I've gone uh, well, I, I, I guess I spoke to both of you in the interim, so it's not quite mm-hmm. two weeks since mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. since we've last spoken uh, spoken to you a few times. But uh, we haven't had a show. I mean, we haven't taken a show off in years, mm-hmm. years and years. Mm-hmm. So, but last Sunday, Jan uh, mm-hmm. Simpson and I talked about uh, her summer reading list, uh, which was chock full of uh, recommendations of things that you might want to pick up and read. Uh, at the lake or at the beach or wherever you summer. Uh, so if you want to go back a week and check that out in the in the feed, you can. Also, Jan has been dominating Broadway Radio here with uh, all the dra- all the drama came out yesterday on the public uh, on BroadwayRadio.com. Uh, her, her discussion with uh, Mimi Pakros on the nineteen forty five Pulitzer winner Harvey. Uh, and also yesterday on the Patreon feed only in Stagecraft, uh, she talked to Brian Watkins, the playwright of Epiphany that's playing right now. So uh, that'll be available to the general public next Saturday, or you can get it right now on patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. So, Peter, first up in our review section, uh, you you were once a high school teacher, weren't you? Yes, where <laughs> did anybody call you the nutty professor? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, if you heard some of the things I did when I was a high school teacher, I think that that would be um, quite a quite a statement of uh, fact. Actually, um, someday we'll have to go into that. Um, but and, yeah, you know, I never thought of that. But yeah, I guess so. You know, the show reminded me a little, a little of Mister Saturday Night in the sense that mm. it has the same type of happy-go-lucky feel. However, Mr. Saturday Night gets darker in the second act, and um, The Nutty Professor does not get darker. Um, It's still a lot of fun in the second act. However, what I wasn't prepared for was the fact that I actually teared up at the end of the show. Now, who would expect that in a show called The Nutty Professor? Now, first and foremost, um, I did watch the original Jerry Lewis movie on which it's based. It's not based on the Eddie Murphy movie. This was a show that was first done 10 years ago in Nashville. And uh, Jerry Lewis was actually the director at that time. Of course, since then, he has passed on. Um, and Mark Bruni is uh, now in charge. But the thing was that this was the Jerry Lewis project. There's no question that uh, the Eddie Murphy thing has nothing to do with anything. Um, that said, I watched the movie and I didn't like it at all. 
And I didn't like it because uh, Jerry Lewis was so goofy and over the top when he played Professor Kelp, um, who is uh, motivated to change uh, with a potion to make him this suave guy named Buddy Love, who is a real lounge lizard type. And <laughs> while watching the movie, too, I was very concerned about the fact that um, he today, uh, by today's standard, it would be considered sexual harassment because he f- thinks nothing of grabbing a woman, bringing him close to her and um, just... Um, touching her and all that goes with that. And uh, 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 so cocky, so cocky in the movie, uh, thinking he is um, the greatest gift to women that um, has ever been known, all that stuff. Now, that has been so ameliorated by Rupert Holmes. It, 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 it's amazing what Rupert Holmes has done with this project because he, is, he has not made the guy goofy. He has made him more shy than goofy oh yeah he looks a little eccentric i'll grant you but it's about 10 percent of what um the jerry lewis character uh, was and there's very little of the um klutzing around and clumsiness that uh the one with the jerry lewis character that he always is getting himself in terrible trouble Yes, there's no question the Professor Kelp gets himself in trouble. And you do get a great deal of criticism from his um, dean, played wonderfully by Jeff McCarthy. Um, in, in the original property, you're saying, why isn't he being fired? And in this version, he is. Yeah, and there are complications that come up as a result of that that certainly aren't in the original movie. A very smart move was the fact that in the movie, there's a student named Stella who likes Professor Kelp. I don't mean romantically necessarily, but I do mean she likes him. And you do have to wonder why she would even tolerate this goofy guy while everybody in the class is just so, so contemptuous of him. Um, the other kids really seem to have a point. He really seems um, incompetent as a teacher. He's not able to get over the information. It's not just the fact that you can be really bright when you're a teacher. You, you have to be able to convey the information. He's not doing a good job of that. He doesn't know how to skillfully do that. In this production, he does. And in this production, it's not a student. It's a fellow faculty member. So his coming on to her um, when he becomes Buddy Love, when he takes the potion, it's a Jekyll and Hyde story. Um, when he takes the potion that changes him to Buddy Love, um, there's not that squeamishness that we would have when a teacher comes on to a student, um, when an older man comes on to a younger woman, that type of thing. They're ostensibly at least peers, they're colleagues, you know, and so that's a very smart thing as well. But you know, I was I was strangely reminded of a line in Mary Mary, one of my favorite comedies in which um, Bob uh, McElloway, um has um, has just put out a book which gets a review saying that the author was a magician with words. And believe me, that is Rupert Holmes. I am telling you, he has so many expressions, uh, so, a great lyric writer, so many expressions in his lyrics that are, are, are just terrific beyond belief um, that he really you can tell he looks at every word and tries to get in every word that he can in and have it mean something. But he plays with words. That's why I say he's a magician with words. And um, for example, um, Buddy Love is going to uh, perform at the prom. The kids all insist on it. They're really crazy about him. He becomes um, a hero to them. And um, Jeff McCarthy, the dean, doesn't want that to happen. So Buddy Love gets on his good side by saying, um, 
you know, um, why don't I open for you? I bet you were a great actor in high school. And so there's a song in which we get uh, the, uh, the lyric about how he played Hamlet. My to be or not to be was not to be believed. I mean, I think that's a very good lyric. So um, and also there's an assistant played by Clea Blackhurst, who has been with the project since day one. She is um, the dean's assistant. She lusts for him. uh, And um, but she's a, a very prim and proper lady until she says I'm going to take off my spectacles and make a spectacle of myself. (laughs) So, I mean, that's the type of wordplay we don't get very much in musicals anymore. So it's really wonderful to see it happening Um, when when uh, Professor, well, Buddy Love claims that he's hot. um, The the, uh, Stella, the uh, the professor says that he's full of hot air. That's how he's hot. You know, so a lot of stuff like that. And it's just such a pleasure to hear so much wordplay. And a lot of it shows up in the uh, dialogue, too. A very clever thing happens very at the very beginning in which she is supposed to be an English professor. Oh, she is an English professor. I'm sorry. She's an English professor. And the reason I stumbled on supposed is that she says early on, wherefore art thou Romeo? And essentially means, you know, where are you, Romeo? And um, any scholar of Shakespeare will tell you wherefore does not mean where it means why. In, in, and the thing is, he corrects her. Now, you might say, well, she wouldn't make that mistake. No, but the point is, she's using it in such a way that she really under- believes that the average person doesn't know it means why. And therefore, she's using it, um, figuring that she'd get away with it. I mean, it, 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 nobody knows that except he does. Now, that's really good, too, because it makes him smart. However, as good as that is, that pays off towards the end of the show. There's something that I'm not going to tell you about, that that pays off at the end of the show wonderfully. So it's not just a joke for the moment, not just a moment in the show. It really pays off later. I'm telling you, this book is so intelligent. Okay, why does it make me cry? I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of talk about the fact that uh, this guy had to take a potion to change. This is what he wouldn't have been able to do it without the change. Or could he? And that's where Clea Blackhurst's um, assistant comes in, Miss Lemon. She changes. She changes because she wants to change. She changes because she understands that she can change, that we have the power within ourselves to change who we are. We have it. Go ahead and use it. It's there. And I think that's wonderful. So who expects that the nutty professor would um, <laughs> change so much that, that indeed it proves that uh, you can't change for the better because this property has changed for the better. Another factor here, let me say this as well. I do feel that the title is a problem. Now, um, you know, I, I remember talking to Jean Nidich, who started Weight Watchers, and she said, our name is a blessing and a curse because Weight Watchers does tell you that you're going to be able to watch your weight and you're going to lose weight. However, it sounds so stodgy, you know. Well, The Nutty Professor seems um, rather frivolous for a show that really has a, a, a good message in it. But I have a feeling that much like MJ um, had to really uh, bow and scrape to the um, Michael Jackson estate, I have a feeling that um, there's a lot of uh, Jerry Lewis that has to be retained here 
And um, I, I, I have a feeling they wouldn't be able to change the title. I don't know. Kelp and Love struck me as a, a, a good title. And so did the not so nutty professor. But I bet they can't do anything with it. And I'm not saying they'd want to anyway. But um, but it really isn't the ideal title for a show that really has um, so much going for it. So we'll see what happens. I wish it well, needless to say. And um, oh, I haven't talked about Marvin Hamlish's music, which is, um, yeah, Marvin Hamlish wrote it before he died. And um, it certainly is uh, swinging music of the nightclub era of 1960 in which the show was set. So uh, so anyway, a lot of good stuff here. I hope it has a future. I think we somehow we somehow skipped over where this production is. <laughs> Just because yes. of the way we led into it. Yeah. Yes, I did drive 284 miles to get to Ongonquit, uh, the Ongonquit Playhouse, where I recently saw the Share Show. Um, boy, it is such a great operation up there, and I, you know, I really am so so impressed at how uh, Bradford Kenny, the executive artistic director who's been there 17 years, this guy can hold the job, um, <laughs> has done. You know, and he has such a wonderful opening speech that he gives to the audience that he really makes them feel welcome. It's one of the best I've ever heard. So um, uh, kudos to him, too. Uh, there'll be another new musical there this year, Mr. Holland's Opus. And uh, mm. you know, I won't be surprised if I'm up there for that, too. If I can fit it in, I certainly will. All right. Uh, so, Michael, thank you for getting in that the Agonquit Playhouse in there because that was my mistake. I I led with the joke, and uh, <laughs> it was all your fault. We, we, we never we never got back into it. I, Peter, I think Peter, it had something to do with me too. Yeah, but I didn't. Uh, mention Peter, it. <laughs> who wrote Mister? Do you know who wrote uh, Mister Holland's Opus? I'm looking um, here to see. Uh, I can't remember. I can't uh, either. Tony Award winner B.D. Wong and Wayne oh, that's Barker right. yeah, Wayne, bring to the stage. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, another thing about this, um, which is really important. Um, Dan DeLuca is playing uh, these two roles and he was a last minute replacement. Um, right. Max Crum got injured and um, he had to do it in eight days. And I am telling you, I mean, uh, this is another example. We've had so many this year about where um, people had to go on at uh, virtually a moment's notice and made it happen. He was letter perfect. Uh, It's just amazing um, how people can really learn so quickly when they have to. And it really is a terrific performance, uh, both and uh, especially the toned down um, element of Professor Kelp. And uh, and again, not being obnoxious as Buddy Love. So um, credit um, is really due to uh, this last minute replacement. Um, And, you know, while I'm at it, I might as well uh, bring up the fact that certainly um, the actress who played Stella, um, who reminded me a great deal of um, uh, Judy Blazer, uh, who I admire tremendously. Her name is uh, Elena Ricardo. And um, she was uh, a Sophie and Mamma Mia along the way and um, occasionally played... um, Cynthia and Carol in uh, Beautiful, so which is also going to be done at the Playhouse, by the way. So um, wonderful performances by them as well. By the way, to your point about uh, replacements and standbys and things, I forgot to mention yesterday was Broadway Barks, mm, the, yeah. uh, the pet adoption event in, uh, in Schubert Alley, et cetera, and, and environs. And uh, uh, it was quite star-studded this year. Uh, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster were there, and Billy Crystal, uh, and Vanessa Williams and the cast of POTUS, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and uh, you, uh, you know, I mean, the main reason for them being there obviously was to get these dogs and cats adopted. But you uh, again made the point, uh, another speech about how vital understudies and standbys and swings are. Uh, and he praised one of the uh, one of the guys in the company who was there as well. So uh, he he did that. But it was a really wonderful event yesterday, much more crowded than I had ever seen it in the past. Uh, and Bernadette Peters did her usual beautiful job of hosting it, including uh, she dealt very yeah, well with the, the yeah. disruption. Yeah, I, I was there for that. It was really quite upsetting. Uh, these people were there and to make a long story short and not give them too much time. They were apparently protesting uh some something about the the you they feel that the humane society warehouses pets I, I don't even know what that means but um but bernadette said you may take a tour of that place and you will see that they don't do that uh, she said you are very very wrong i i really loved her she her italian came out she really gave it to these people it was it was quite something it yeah, really was did. it was great <laughs> I was going to say the cast of POTUS didn't plan to be there, just trying to get into their matinee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so wonderful how Bernadette Peters is so loyal to this uh, oh, yeah. organization. Just so wonderful. And it's 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 so interesting because she's notorious for uh, not doing anything outside of the theater. You know, she doesn't yeah, do interviews. That's right. She yeah. doesn't do any press. She doesn't do you know she. Uh, she's very uncomfortable in that setting and she puts herself out there for Broadway Barks mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. Michael. Ha it's more than 20 years or so, right? I would How think many? So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I it's really said, wonderful. I think she said 24. Really? Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's just amazing. Yeah. And just, of course, it used to be, uh, she used to be uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore uh, was her co host yeah. for yeah, many years. And yeah, then, of yeah. course, we lost Mary. Uh, but, uh, Sutton really acted as the as the co-host on uh, this occasion, and uh, and Bernadette so much said apparently that that Mary uh, really loved Sutton, so that was a nice kind of oh, that's nice passing of the torch. Uh, I still say somebody should be writing that musical of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Sutton Foster has to play ah, Mary Richards. I mean, they, they really look very much alike. And mm -hmm. me, me, several people have commented that she sounds like Mary mm -hmm. Tyler yeah, Moore yeah, in, yeah. in her Marion. In the music <laughs> man, <laughs> and a revival of Breakfast at Tiffany's be far behind. It can it indeed? <laughs> in in uh, uh, just a, a throwback to something from about ten minutes ago, Weight Watchers changed their name. Oh, so, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> to they, what? So WW. Uh huh. They are no longer Weight Watchers. That's uh, like KFC. DD from Dunkin' Donuts and <laughs> yeah, KFC. Exactly. KFC because they didn't want that fried um, stress. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> one of my uh, favorite things was um, uh, in business school that uh, the case study of Federal Express changing its name. They hired a company for millions of dollars to come up with a new name for Federal Express, and they came up with FedEx, <laughs> and they they collected millions and millions of dollars for that. And like, oh, wow, something somebody already called them. But uh, that's neither here nor there. That's just something that's between the lines. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Michael, uh, you got to see this new production that's happening over at the Tony Kaiser Theater. But as I 
just learned this is not a second stage production. This is just a Daryl Roth has rented the Tony Kaiser Theatre. It's not Correct. part of second stage. But uh, Between the Lines opens up tomorrow. But uh, we'll be talking about it more in the future. But what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, I just wanted to give a thumbs up, uh, preliminary thumbs up before we discuss it more when when others have seen it. Uh, but I really enjoyed this musical, and I love the fact that I'd never heard of the people who wrote it. Um, Alyssa Samsell and Kate Anderson are credited with the music and lyrics. Um, and the book is by Timothy Allen McDonald, based on the book by Jody Picou. Is that how you pronounce it? I think Picoult, but I'm really not sure. P-I-C-O-U-L-T, Picoult. Very famous writer. And Samantha Van Leer. Uh, uh, so I, I, and it's got a really good team behind it, directed by Jeff Calhoun, choreographed by Paul McGill. And as I said uh, before we started recording, uh, it's obvious to me, it seems obvious to me that there are future plans for this show because they obviously put a lot of money into it in terms of production values, in particular, the projections, the animated projections are so great. Uh, they're, I guess, may, maybe the best projections I've ever seen uh, in a show on or off Broadway. So I, I think you're going to see this show go somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I hope the, I hope the critical response and the audience response is very positive. Uh, and if so, I, I'm I'm pretty positive you'll you'll see it somewhere either for an extended off-Broadway run or perhaps on Broadway. Um, it's a really wonderful show. It's about a, uh, a, a teenage girl, a high school girl who uh, moves to a new town with her mother. And so she feels like a misfit uh, and she, she's not really accepted, at least not at the beginning. And uh, she takes refuge in reading in reading and in particular in reading uh, a, a a children's book that she decides to pick up and read for, uh, for some reason. And it's a, it's a, you know, kind of a typical uh, story with a, with a handsome prince and, and all the other kind of characters you'd imagine in that kind of a story. Uh, but the characters then begin to come alive for her, especially particularly the handsome prince. And it's a really very clever as to how the, um, the, her, her, the real life people in her real life world, her mother and her teachers and her fellow classmates, et cetera, how they work into the fantasy world, uh, playing characters in the in the in the in the story, uh, similar to the Wizard of Oz, I guess. Um, but very well done and, and with a very postmodern sensibility, as you might imagine. Uh, I really liked, I, I thought in a nutshell, I thought the, the main problem with the show is that, that it's a little too long and it felt a little too padded. But each individual uh, song and, and scene, I, I thought were fine. It's not that there was any, it's not that any of the material was substandard. It's just that it, it needed to be maybe cut and focused a little bit. Um, but I really liked the music. The music is very eclectic. I would say is a good word for it. It, it, uh, it, it borrows from several different styles of music. There's a tap number at, at one point, but then there's a, a, several songs that sound much more modern and the lyrics are very clever. I didn't notice any, 
false rhymes mm, <laughs> at <yeah>. first hearing. <laughs> uh, so uh, that made me very happy. Uh, maybe it's a trend, Peter. Back to mm-hmm. lyrics yeah. that actually rhyme. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> um, so I really, I really love this show, and it was such a delightful surprise because I basically knew absolutely nothing about it going into it. Uh, so that's always nice when you when you go into something cold. And as I said, I, I'd never heard of these writers. Um, and the, the cast is really excellent. Ariel Jacobs, Jake David Smith, you're going to certainly be hearing about him in the future. He's, he's kind of a newcomer, but, but he's going to be, uh, I think a star. Um, Vicki Lewis, the great Vicki Lewis, Hillary Fisher, Will Burton, so wonderful. Um, you may remember him as Ambrose in Hello, Dolly and other things. Um, Jerusha Cavazos, John Rapson, Ren Rivera, Sean Stack, and Julia Murney, who is now graduated to Mother Roles <laughs> um, and still has her voice, her phenomenal voice, absolutely, completely, thoroughly intact. Um, so really, uh, you might, if you, I would advise you to get over and see it while it's at the Tony Kaiser before you have to pay a lot more to see it on Broadway, because I think that might happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, Peter and I were both uh, trying to see between the lines, but there was a COVID outbreak in the yes. cast, and so he pushed back the opening, and Peter and I have been rescheduled. So we'll talk about it hopefully in a week or two uh, and revisit it after uh, after we see it. Next up, we have uh, Peter. You uh, also were in the Felicia Mobile and went from mm-hmm. Maine to Pennsylvania, or mm-hmm. maybe you stopped somewhere in the middle, <laughs> uh, where you got to the Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival and saw a chorus line. But tell us about a chorus line and the festival itself. Uh, it's a first-class production of a chorus line, uh, Dennis Razzi, and um, directed and. Uh, Luis Villabon uh, was the associate director and also the choreographer. And he has a history with this show because way back in uh, 2001, uh, he played Paul at uh, the Paper Mill Playhouse. Uh, And I remember very vividly that it was 2001. I'll always remember that because Mm. it was the weekend before 9-11. And I do remember uh, driving home past the um, World Trade Center towers. But I also remember how wonderful Luis Villabon was as Paul. And it's really something to see how he has, um, well, he and, of course, uh, Dennis as well. I mean, let's give credit where credit is due. But um, the point is that um, the... uh, Eddie Martin Morales, ironically, the guy's name is Morales, um, is has a grittier feeling to Paul. And that's that's really good. You know, a grittier feeling, um, because after all, you know, um, he, he lived in a rough and tumble world. And uh, so let's see a little harder shell on him. So I thought that was really something. Um, everybody was quite good. It, it certainly looked like the Michael Bennett production. I wish that people would. Um, and this is something I wish they do with every show that takes place um, in a different era. Um, flash up, you know, 1975 on the um, back wall. Just to, that's all I ask. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a fancy mm. projection. Can we please just have four numbers to tell us where we are? Because it must have really consternated some of the audience when they heard, yeah, I was born in, you know, 1951, you know, that type of thing. My God, mm. you know. And so, um, but, uh, but anyway, the production is the thing. And indeed, it was a, a first class production. But this is the thing about the uh, Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival. Patrick Mulcahy, who's leaving, but 
he's done a wonderful job there. Now, this is in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, which isn't far from Bethlehem. Um, and you know, it's, it's a couple of hours away uh, from where we live. But um, but they really do such wonderful work. And I, this is not the first time I've been there. They have two theaters, a small space called the Schubert, by the way, but S-C-H-U-P-E-R-T. Um, and, um, and the main stage theater, which is really quite nice. Um, I would say it held about 300 people, maybe a little fewer. But um, I can tell that every seat's a good one. And um, they did every brilliant thing that uh, one person show about um, suicide and the ramifications thereof. And uh, they're going to be doing much ado about nothing. They're going to be doing fences. They're going to be doing something called the River Bride, uh, which I'm not familiar with. But uh, they're going to be there for the next couple of months. And um, I really do think it's worth seeing a trip, um, go, making a trip down there to uh, Center Valley because um, everything I've seen there has really been quite wonderful. Uh, and uh, this is not remotely the first time I've been there, and it certainly is not the last time I'm going to be there. Top-notch talent. It's it's really quite wonderful to see such wonderful talent uh, exhibiting themselves. And, you know, really, um, in, 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 with Chorus Line, one of the things that I noticed this time that I think was really stressed is how difficult it is in that first scene when people are eliminated and they have to pick up their bags and they have to walk past the people who are still contending for the roles that these are the, there's no way to put it. Otherwise the losers. And it's really so sad to see them. Um, they have to not make eye contact with people because they're so ashamed that they, they were the first people eliminated all that kind of business. It's really very hard. So um, Catherine Bruner uh, playing Val singing um, dance 10 looks three. Did you know, by the way, that for a while that song was dance 10 looks one. Mm -hmm. And if anybody doubts it, come up to my place and you can hear the uh, in theater taping that somebody made that night when it was dance 10 looks one, you know, so I guess um, they really felt that was just a little bit too uh, bad. Too and also to, the original you know, title was was tits, tits and, ass. and ass. Right. And then yeah. they realized that they were uh, they were ruining the joke because right, people yeah, read it more, in the program. The program <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, um, Cassie was played by a woman named Sissy Bell and uh, terrific, you know, really had all the, the pathos. And um, you know, uh, of course, Sheila is always a standout road and Madison Finney did extraordinarily well by it. So uh, that was good. And it's always fun to see a young man playing uh, Mark Patrick Higgins. Um, you know, he's the um, the one who's the most enthusiastic. Um, you know, if I get the show, I'll work real hard. Um, <laughs> a funny story. Um, when I went up to Algonquin, I stopped uh, to get uh, a soda. And when I came out, um, there was a kid wearing a um, Muni T-shirt. And I said, oh, <laughs> have you been to the Muni? He said, I've actually acted there. And I said, oh, have you ever acted at stages? Because I'm reasonably friendly with Jack Lane, who um, who runs the place. And he says, I'm just about to play Mark and Chorus Line there. So what an irony. <laughs> so if you missed it there, you can see the stages pretty soon. So if you want to go out to St. Louis. Um, so uh, anyway, the Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival um, really, really is uh, a wonderful professional theater. It's on the campus of DeSalle University mm. uh, and um, not hard to get to, really. I mean, you know, the drive is a, a very pleasant one, and uh, I recommend it heartily. I have a... a kind of a really cute story about the original production of Chorus Line that I just heard. Uh, I reconnected with Emmett Foster recently, who was Joe Papp's assistant for 20 years. Wow. And he told me this. I love this story. He was there, uh, you know, for all those years. And he was there while they were planning the uh, 
record-breaking performance of a chorus line on Broadway where Michael Bennett brought back hundreds of alumni uh, and restaged the whole show to, you know, to create what apparently is one of the greatest nights in show business history, according to people who were there. But Emmett said that he said, you know, originally I was I was offered a ticket and I wasn't going to go. Wow. <laughs> he said because he said because I, I initially didn't know that Michael planned to do all of that. Uh, he said, I thought it was just going to be another regular performance and then they were going to maybe make speeches afterwards. And I had already seen the show like five or ten times. Mm -hmm. He said, but then he said, I started to hear little things about uh, Michael, you know, what Michael was going to do and bring all these people back and restage things and blah, blah, blah. He said, and then um, people, friends started calling me and one friend called me and said, I will give you a thousand dollars if you can get me a ticket to this performance. Oh, at, wow. at which point Emmett said to himself, I think maybe I better go to this. <laughs> and I said, I said, could you imagine if you had missed it? He said, I, I would have kicked myself. Well, sure. And yeah. you know, I, and think of what a thousand dollars meant in 1975. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean yes. today that's that's a that's, theater ticket. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but back then, you know. exactly. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, so that's a chorus line of Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival. I have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, you got over to the Laurie Beachman Theater to see Jeff Harner. So tell us about Jeff did an absolutely phenomenal show called Jeff Harnar, I Know Things Now, My Life in Sondheim's Words. Mm. Um, and he put it together with this great musical director named John Weber, J-O-N, W-E-B-E-R. And he had uh, Steve Doyle on bass and Ray Marchica on drums. So top flight musicians. But this this was unlike any other show I've ever seen in that they must have spent so much time on the arrangements because uh, what it basically was, uh, was that I felt like dozens almost maybe hundreds of Sondheim songs were represented, but just uh, most of them or some of them in little fragments. He would start one song and then go into another and then go back to the original. And sometimes it was just like one line or two from another song would come in. And uh, But it, they all fit together so perfectly. Uh, for example, uh, he sang... Can That Boy Foxtrot, which was uh, cut from Follies. Uh, but then it uh, and it's about, uh, you know, a guy who's mm -hmm. really kind of hot and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so he's singing that. And then and, and then all of a sudden, at, at some point, he sings a boy like that once one thing only. <laughs> and the audience just loved it um he did loving you uh from mm. passion into losing my mind from follies mm -hmm. um uh everybody says don't uh into marry me a little into i'm calm into getting married today because they're all songs that are really kind of frenetic uh and so that was the through line there um he did anyone can whistle into send in the clowns into could i leave you mm. uh, i mean it was just brilliant it, it was just brilliant and i had not seen jeff perform in uh, for some reason i don't feel like i don't had not seen him perform in decades uh but his voice is 
is also still completely there in his mastery of lyrics and his acting ability. Oh, he did he did wonderfully creative things like he did uh, the God Why Don't You Love Me blues as if he was Jimmy Durante drunk in a bar. <laughs> I got those God Why Don't You Love Me. It was hysterical. <laughs> the audience loved it. Um, and the uh, um. He did a up a jazzy up tempo version of the ballad of Sweeney Todd. Uh, I mean, d- there was no end to the creativity of this show. And the the capper was, um, I he did uh, apparently Rick Chrome uh, or Chrome Chrome, I guess is the pronunciation C R O M, who we recently mentioned because he was in the cast of The Bedwetter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also a great writer with musical mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. one of his major mm-hmm. credits. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he wrote something called Sondheim's Oklahoma, <laughs> and it's and it's a uh, you know a medley of that shows songs as if they would have been written by Sondheim. Now, this has been done before. I think it's even been done before with that show. Uh, in uh, it wasn't that in the musical of musicals. I think I think Sondheim's Oklahoma was one of the parodies in the musical of musicals that show. But Rick's is absolutely brilliant. And that brought down the house as the encore, basically. Um, so I, I just loved it. Uh, Jeff did three shows there at the Laurie Beachman Theater, and I saw the final one. And I was so glad I, that I was there. I, 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 if, like Emmett Foster with, of course, I would have kicked myself if I had missed uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So uh, that is uh, Jeff's I, – I, Jeff's – doesn't seem to have another thing coming up at the Laurie Beachman, but on his website, he's got lots of other shows yes. listed and when they're coming up and things like that. Plus, he's got his album also n- named oh, I Know thank Things. thank you. I almost forgot. Yes, it's the, the, the PS Classics has an album. Yes. Uh, basically an album version of this show. And so uh, if he doesn't do it again, or even if he does, you can get your hands on that and, and give a listen to it because so much of it was uh, obviously, you know, not visual. Uh, and so you really won't miss a lot. Uh, I, I have not actually listened to the album version yet, but I can imagine that it's something that you will really, really, really enjoy. Yeah. He's, uh, seems to have a a bunch of, uh, a history of the different shows. He's got Jeff Harner sings Cole Porter, uh, Sammy Kahn, yeah, Fifties Gold. He's got a, a, a Comden a Green, Cy Coleman. So it's certainly, oh wow, it, it, it's comprehensive. Stephen comprehensive. Holden went to see this show. Uh, the former New York Times cabaret critic. And he wrote somewhere, this was the best cabaret show I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he's been to thousands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Holden is the Felicia of cabaret. <laughs> mm. So, uh, Peter, you got over to the AMT Theater that, and you got to see a, a new musical called Love Quirks. So tell us about it. Yes, I actually saw a show in New York, the mansion. So <laughs> anyway, love quirks. Uh, I think this has the potential to be the next I love you, a perfect now change because it uh, deals with the same type of demographic, uh, people who are single and uh, are looking for love. Um, the subtitle, well, I don't I, I guess you don't say subtitle, but under the title, they do say based on actual events. OK, <laughs> so here's what happens. Um we we have um, a character who uh, is living with two women. 
All right. But he's got to go out of town. So he needs to sublet. <laughs> so he asks um, his friend to sublet the, uh, the apartment. And the guy needs a place to live. It's really important to him. He's got to do it. No question. Um, the problem is that he used to be romantically linked with one of the women who live in the apartment. Aha. Uh -huh. I smell complications coming, don't you? So um, Ryan is the person who's leaving, and um, Aaron Lamar really is very, very good in the part. Uh, Chris is, uh, is the guy, and he's played by Matthew Schatz. Now, the thing is, he reminded me of a term we haven't heard in a long time, and that is matinee idol. Remember, mm, yeah. you know, that nobody says that anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it should be said because in the days when they used to have matinee idols, there were only two matinees a week, Wednesday and Saturday. Now we have a Sunday matinee. We need more matinee idols. And this guy <laughs> really is. is it's a third uh, more. So um, so Matthew Schatz really is extraordinarily good. Maggie McDowell is Lily. Stephanie is the other um, uh, roommate um, who has a great deal to say about what's going on, needless to say, uh, a Cassandra type figure. Now, none of this would be any good, of course, if we didn't have great music and lyrics. And Seth Biden Hirsch has really come through. Oh. Um, do you know? Oh, do you know him? Yeah. 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 OK. Wow. Really come through, you know, um, and uh, it, it, it the wit in the lyrics is really terrific. The music is just right for these characters. So that's uh, terrific. There's a book by Mark Childers and um, it's directed by Brian Childers or Childers. I really don't know. I don't know if they're um, uh, brothers, you know, father and son. Uh, husband and husband. I don't know. But um, anyway, um, very, very well directed. And it's so nice to be back in this theater. Um, this was uh, it's at 354 West 45th Street. It's gone through a lot of permutations. I remember back in the 70s when it was called the No Smoking Playhouse. Um, but it's been redone. It's um, <clears throat> it isn't the same setup that when Primary Stages was there early in its existence. It's um, brand spanking new seats and all that. So it's a very commodious place now. They've really worked very hard to make it nice. And of course, none of that would matter if the show were not good. But Love Quirks, I think, is really quite, quite effective and quite, quite wonderful and quite, quite well, uh, <laughs> well produced and performed. And I think it's going to be with us for a long, long, long time. Wow, great to hear. Oh, perfect. So, uh, Michael, you mm. uh, had brought up that uh, we had some news out of the Theater Hall of Fame. So why don't you fill us in? Oh, yeah. Uh, the uh, I'll just actually read the news item from Broadway World. Uh, the Theater Hall of Fame has announced its 2022 inductees. Uh, the gala induction and dinner will be held on Monday, November 14th at 7 p.m. at the Gershwin Theater in New York City. But uh, that, that's a private event. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you can buy tickets to it. Do you guys know? No, I don't think so. I think yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the 2022 inductees are Christine Ebersole, actor, Frank Galati, director, Bill Irwin, actor, writer, Abe Jacob. It says actor slash sound designer. I'm not familiar with his acting career. No, me either. Uh, <laughs> uh, Lynn Nottage, playwright, Susan Laurie Parks, playwright, Mandy Patinkin, actor, and and Tosaki Shange, playwright. So that's three black female play playwrights in case you 
keeping track. Uh, so that's a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, Theater Hall of Fame, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with it. These are the names uh, on the walls of the Gershwin Theater. Uh, and it was founded in 1970 by Earl Blackwell, uh, James M. Niederlander, Gerard Osterreicher and L. Arnold Weisberger to honor lifetime achievement in the American musical in the American theater. Excuse me. Uh, the mission is to preserve past theater history, honor the present theater professionals, and encourage emerging artists of the American theater. Uh, so uh, that's uh, a, a nice thing for all of these people. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's a uh, it's a great honor for for all of them, and it's certainly a uh, an eclectic list of people. So uh, that's just something that a news item that caught my eye and that a lot of people may not be that much aware of. But there well, are those names in, the, yeah. you know, every time you go into, you know, so if you've seen Wicked lately, yeah. uh, those are those names. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm going to say something about my new book um, because it's, it's relevant here to the Theater Hall of Fame. Uh, there's a baseball hall of fame up in Cooperstown, New York, and uh, they don't just have names on the wall. They actually have plaques mm. uh, with the uh, in brass uh, or bronze or something, um, some brownish metal. Uh, and uh, you, you actually have a picture um, the, the engraved there um, of the actual face of the um, the guy who played baseball. All right. Now, it was very much easier in the times when players used to play for the same team always. You know, Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle for the Yankees, um, Ted Williams for the Red Sox, you know, the, that type of thing. But now players um, jump from team to team to team when they get the best offer because um, uh, uh, there was a big ruling many, many moons ago about how players just can't be traded. I mean, that essentially makes them slaves. So, um, Free so now. Yeah, free agency. So now um, there's a big conundrum when a baseball player is elected to the Hall of Fame. And the conundrum is what cap should he wear, should he be seen wearing? You know, I mean, you know, uh, Reggie Jackson certainly made a reputation when he played for the Oakland A's, but he made a bigger reputation for the Yankees. So it would seem that he'd have an NY on his cap rather than um, an A's cap. Well, if the Theater Hall of Fame had bronze plaques, yeah. <laughs> you know, Mary Martin, what, what costume would you put her in? Would you put her in Nellie Forbish's uh, sailor suit? Would you put her in Peter Pan's outfit? Would you put her in that um, uh, Australian, uh, Austrian type um, outfit she wore when she taught the kids to sing Do Re Mi? You know, <laughs> would you put Angela Lansbury as Mame or uh, the Mad Woman of Shio or Rose and Gypsy or Mrs. Lovett? You know, what would you do? So that's one of the questions I ask in my book about debates, disputes and disagreements. Hmm. I guess one obvious solution is in both cases to have them all in mufti, not in, in <laughs> baseball uniforms or in costume. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it'd be fun to have them in costumes. Yeah, well, it would so, be. Yeah, yeah, but then it creates that issue you mentioned. It does, but I mean, I don't think anybody would be outraged if indeed they said, "Oh my God, she should have been Rose and Gypsy." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good point. Mm. <laughs> it's very true. Very. I'm true. calling my lawyer in the morning. Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I, I wonder if like a Madame Tussauds runs into that problem where you know you, you put like a uh, Leonardo mm. DiCaprio there or uh, or oh. something like that. Who? What? In, in what? 
you know, a Tom Cruise, which which version of Tom Cruise are you, are you going to be Top Gun or are you going to be Mission Impossible? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. All right. So uh, next up, uh, Peter, you got over to the Asylum Theater to see Titanic, a little, uh, I, would we call it a spoof or an homage to the Titanic movie? Well, ironically enough, James, I really thought you were setting me up with the Leonardo DiCaprio line. (laughs) And so it was funny to hear that that wasn't on your mind at all. But uh, indeed, this is um, uh, uh, a look at uh, the Titanic movie, the famous Oscar winning movie from uh, more than a quarter of a century ago. Now, first off, uh, I'm going to say that um, uh, I saw the movie when it was first released. And, um, you know, I remember a few things about it, but not a lot about it. All right. That's a B. It this um, has um, a look at um, Celine Dion and uh, her interaction with uh, the film. And it tells her story uh, involved with the film and um, all that goes with that. I know nothing about Celine Dion. Um, I know much about Celine Dion as I know about Dion and the Belmonts of the Dion quintuplets. I don't. Yeah. You know. All right. So I come to the show knowing nothing. So. The point is, I cannot appreciate it. However, I am telling you, the audience reaction was so incredible. And here's what I mean by incredible. It's one thing for people to laugh at a joke. Fine. Great. But you know that when people laugh at a joke and then clap like that, you know that that means that they have admiration for the joke. It's not only that they think it's funny. They're saying, oh, that, that was so clever of you to, to, to do that. That was terrific. Terrific. Marla Bindell, who's one of the writers, so amazing to, to as Celine Dion. You're saying you don't know that. But I could tell from the audience that she got every nuance of it. Uh, there was there was just a little flick of this and a, a twist of that. And I'm telling you, the audience is going crazy. And I don't think it was a case that all her friends were there. It couldn't be. The place was packed. And I'm telling you, the response was, shall we say, Titanic? Yeah, let's do that. Titanic. And I do not believe <laughs> that they're going to stay in this little theater. This is the theater that was the Uptown Citizens Brigade Theater for a while. It was the American Jewish Repertory Theater, if that's what it was called, um, a, a Jewish Repertory Theater that was there um, in the 80s and 90s. It's underneath the supermarket um, in, um, in the 20s. And um, a small space. A very small space, and um, it needs a big space because this is going to be a tremendous hit for a long time based on what I saw that night. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of Titanic fans. I'm sure there are plenty of Celine Dion fans, and they, they're going to have to see Marla Mandel um, do it to what must be perfection, considering what that audience um, did. So, so for me, the real magic of the show was seeing how well these people had succeeded by the way the audience was responding. Mm. And I was very glad to see that. You know, I mean, that <laughs> it doesn't have to please me. Uh, that's not important to me. What it has to do is please an audience. And, oh, does Titanic, if that's how it's pronounced, please its audience. Well, Peter, I think that your pull quote should be for the show. Get thee to the asylum. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> get yes, thee indeed. to the asylum. <laughs> or maybe get thee to the armory. Yes. Uh, I was telling before we started that um, I saw a, a quote on one of those electronic 
billboards that are all around town uh, where you can charge your phone and uh, said, get thee to the armory. And I thought, oh, what? That's so smart, you know, because, of course, it's a, a, a parody of get, get thee to a nunnery, which is uh, said in Hamlet. Hamlet says that's to a failure. Um, and he doesn't mean convent, by the way. But anyway, yes, Hamlet's at the armory and it's a terrific production. Just amazing. And one of the reasons is because uh, we have a young Hamlet. After all, he's supposed to be, you know, a kid going to college, you know. Um, so it's nice when a kid can play it. I mean, Lord knows Ian McKellen played it um, not that long ago in London, and he's no kid. Sarah Bernhardt played it once upon a time, and she's no guy. But um, Alex Lothar is young and vibrant, and, uh, you know, it's a difficult role, needless to say. And this is not a terribly abridged Hamlet because it runs three and a half hours, maybe, maybe even a little longer, maybe a little less, I'll grant you. But it's also done um, in modern dress and not just modern dress, but um, there's a a good deal of video involved. So, um, in fact, it's startling at the beginning to see the ghosts show up on the video. And that's very, very cleverly done. So uh, very, very nice. But uh, the play is the thing, needless to say. And so is the production. And um, a, a wonderful, wonderful performance, as you'd expect from Jennifer Ely. Is that how it's pronounced? I don't know. Yes. E-H-L-E. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that how it's pronounced? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Terrific performance. You know, um, really, really quite wonderful. And um, she's actually a member of Actors' Equity, as you'd expect. But most of these other people aren't because they all came from England. And um, so um, <clears throat> so it's a, a guest production here. Kirsty Ryder, tremendous as a failure as well. Just quite wonderful in going from this girl who's in love to a girl who's um, of course goes mad. So, um, and uh, Peter Wright is, is, is a wonderful Polonius, um, a lot of um, verve in his performance. And Angus Wright is really a, another one who could be a matinee idol um, as Claudius. So um, it, it's really quite wonderful when you can see a show that is that long and seems not that long at all. And here's the ultimate statement. Linda stayed for the whole thing. Wow. All of it. Every minute. So um, <laughs> what greater compliment can there be than that? So uh, <laughs> really very, very worthwhile. Um, it, it, whenever you go to the armor, you have no idea what the situation is going to be for um, the uh, setup because um, the, the chairs, uh, the seats move here, there and everywhere, uh, depending on the production. So this is pretty much um, a standard um set up in that you see in every theater left right and center and um it, and it's stadium seating so uh you you may feel like you're far away i'll grant you that but at least uh, you won't have a head in front of you uh blocking the action and you don't want the action blocked in this production because it is so uh spectacular and so we really do have to um give a great deal of credit to this um, North American premiere. I mean, this is the first one, but this is um, an Almeida theater production. So, and Robert Icke is the director in my, what a great job he did. So um, I will say that they, the night I was there, they did have terrible sound problems, but um, I bet that that's been worked out by now. Um, so I think you can go and, um, and not uh, be um, terribly concerned about uh, not hearing it. But uh, I went early in the run, so uh, I think that's worth out. So I'll steal the line. Get thee to the armory. (laughs) All right. Uh, Do you guys know the the reviewer from The Wrap, Tom Geyer? Is that who said it? 
Tom Geyer said it. Yeah, that's uh-huh. uh, I can say it's a great, great line. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a great line. I don't know Tom either, but uh, he his review is the one that is uh, quoted there. Get thee to the armory. Perfect. So uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you got over to Where? fifty-four below. <laughs> you got to fifty-four below to see ah, Scott yes, Siegel. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell us about Scott Siegel's show. Yeah, well, before we we get to the review of the show, I guess we should mention for those who haven't read it because it's quite a recent occurrence that. Mm. Um, uh, the relationship uh, between F- Michael Feinstein and Fifty Four Below has has ended. Uh, you don't bring me flowers, <laughs> <laughs> and it seems uh, like uh, two different stories here. Uh, the Michael Feinstein's quote, as uh, related to the New York Times, is quote: "I'm excited for Fifty Four Below and their future, and for my future and the future of my brand." I've been thinking about a move for two years now. I've accomplished everything I had envisioned with Feinstein's 54 Below, and I felt like it was time to make a change. How do you top a Tony honor? Which, um, did you guys realize that yeah. they, they just yeah. got a Tony honor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I guess it was all due to Michael Feinstein. They got that honor. Oh, is that right? No, I didn't hear. That's, okay. that's what I'm being. Uh, he, oh, I took the credit for it. I took the credit for it. I was like, uh, now we're talking. <laughs> I see. Uh, um, Paul Witty. Paul Witty says, "I guess we won't be sending roses, but uh, maybe it'll be Rose's turn." So <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll be. Yeah, that was a that was a great place. Anyway, yeah. Um, and uh, so that was uh, his statement, and he's going now t- to be forming a, a, a partnership with the Cafe Carlisle. Uh, which of course is another venerable uh, mm, night spot. Yeah. But uh, the 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 statement from Fifty Four Below partners Richard Frankel, Tom Vertel, and Stephen Baruch is. Quote, we've enjoyed our six-year relationship with Michael and wish him well at the Cafe Carlisle. We decided several months ago (laughs) that we would be returning to our original name of 54 Below and share that information with him and his management. We look forward to what the next 10 years hold for 54 Below because they just uh, celebrated their 10th anniversary Mm -hmm. and bringing to Broadway's living room, which is what they call it, more brilliant new artists and legendary performers. So that that's that. Um, I, I have I to have, uh, include a note for myself right here to yeah. include a uh, some sound sound bites of cats screaming at each other right now. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do that in post. I'll do that in post. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows if we'll ever know the full story? But anyway, uh, regardless, I saw a wonderful show there on June thirtieth. Uh, in that room, <laughs> uh, 54 sings Broadway's greatest hits, uh, one of Scott Siegel's uh, series of shows with that title. And this was a really uh, wonderful addition with uh, the performers on this occasion were Willie Falk, Rebecca Hershkovitz, Willie Demian, Leanne Marie Dobbs, Ben Jones, Ryan Knowles, and uh, 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 with Ron Abel as the music director. And it was, a you know, as, as all of these evenings are, it was very eclectic to use that word again. Uh, we had um, Willie Falk open the show with Make Someone Happy uh, from Do Re Mi. And um, he did a fairly good job with, job with that, but nothing uh, as, as great as his really superb performances of If I Were a Rich Man mm. uh, later on in the program. So, yes, um, 
just as Julia Murney is now playing mothers, <laughs> well, mm-hmm. Willie Falk is now playing is at an age where he can <laughs> certainly play Tevya. Mm-hmm. And he was really just terrific. Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen that and heard that number done so many times, but he really managed to bring make it his own and bring his own inflections to the lines and and his own personality to the role. So he he was really wonderful. Um Ryan Knowles uh, did Everything Old is New Again. Uh, Willie Demian did She Loves Me. Rebecca Hershkowitz did As We Stumble Along from the Drowsy Chaperone. Um, and Ben Jones, who I, uh, who's, I don't know if you guys know him. He, I really think he would be a star, except that uh, there aren't that many new shows written for his mm-hmm. type of voice, mm-hmm. which is a basically legit, mm-hmm. phenomenal mm-hmm. Barry Tenor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did Kiss Her Now from Dear uh, World. Mm. And uh, then he ended the, the show with Bring Him Home from Les Mis. Just, just beautiful. I snapped Ben up for, I'm doing a, 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 another show at 54 Below. Uh, oh, what is it? Uh, Bernstein on Broadway. Good. Uh, September September 27th, which is the night after <laughs> West Side Story. The, the, the 65th anniversary of the opening of West Side Story on Broadway. And the reason yeah. we had to move it we had to move it uh, oh. was because of the Jewish holiday. Ah. Uh, so, but that's, sh- that should be great. We've also got Jay Aubrey Jones back. Uh, oh, nice. Syracuse show. And um, Nikita Burstein from mm. Romeo oh, and yeah, Bernadette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Megan Sterna also uh, from, from my, uh, from my Syracuse show. So I'm looking forward to that. And I guess Bernstein's really in the, you know, if he if he ever left the news, <laughs> uh, he's in the news again uh, because Bradley Cooper uh, is doing that movie, that bio flick about him, and he's playing Bernstein, and that that has been actually filming all over town quite recently. I in fact I um, stumbled onto one of the shooting locations on Forty Fourth Street a week or two ago, um, so I'm not sure when that's coming out, but I, I think that's going to make Bernstein uh, known to a whole new generation of people as a, as a person, not just, I mean, obviously everybody knows the, (laughs) if nothing else, everybody knows West side story and a lot of people know Candide and on the town, et cetera. But, uh, and not to mention all his hundreds of recordings as a classical conductor and, and his work on TV. Uh, So he was really quite a fascinating, fascinating figure that I, thought we should tribute him uh and this would be a good time to do so all right so that is uh scott siegel's 54 sings broadway's greatest hits at 54 below and on the uh website at 54 below.com uh there are many many future dates here for the various scott's uh yes scott siegel productions stuff here so uh check them out because they're just so so wonderful. Scott went through a lot of hard times. He was in a terrible accident. Yes. So yeah. it's really nice that uh, yes. he's bounced back. Yes. All right. So uh, I think that's the end of my list. So that wraps it up for this morning. <laughs> Before we get on to uh, the musical moment and trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can su- subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, 
all those various places play Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia, or two weeks ago trivia? Right. <clears throat> the song that ends Act 2 in a famous musical used to open Act 2 when the show began its tryout. What's the show? What's the song? Anna Tefka opened Act 2 of Fiddler on the Roof when it opened in Detroit. By the time it reached Broadway, of course, it closed the show. After weeks of being a runner-up or worse, Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place, faulted by Brigadude, Fred Abramowitz, Ingrid Gammerman. Josh Israel asked, would you count A la Volant du Peuple being the act to <laughs> opener of the original French version of Les Mis, later becoming the finale? Yes, I will. Good luck to you, Josh. Okay. This <laughs> week's question. What do the simple folk do from Camelot? Nowadays from Chicago, a secretary is not a toy from how to succeed. And the merry little minuet from John Murray Anderson's Almanac, sometimes simply called the merry minuet, all suggest that something Stephen Sondheim once alleged in a song is true. What is it? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia. At BroadwayRadio.com, we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our opener and our closer are a tribute to Kenward Elmsley, uh, um, whom we just lost. Uh, but he was born in 1929, uh, so that was a, a very long life. Mm -hmm. uh, his one Broadway credit uh, mm -hmm. in 1971 was The Grass Harp, for which he wrote both the lyrics and the book and the show opened, I'm sorry, began previews on October 28th, 71 and opened on November 2nd, 71 and closed on November 6th, 71. So uh, was not with us for very long, but many, many people, including Peter Felicia. Oh, indeed. <laughs> really adore the show. Mm -hmm. and, and fortunately, there is a, a wonderful cast album of it. Uh, and that is where we, uh, from where we take our two musical moments. The opening song I chose was Yellow Drum, mm. uh, uh, sung by Barbara Cook uh, et al. And for the closer, a really delightful song, called Floozies, <laughs> <laughs> sung by Russ Stacker. So uh, that's it. I, I wonder if, uh, I, I think, uh, I always think of the Grass Harp as a kind of show that is too, um, the sensibility is, is maybe too gentle uh, and uh, maybe, a, maybe too sentimental uh, for it to be successful in a revival nowadays, at least not on Broadway. But um, but who knows? Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, it would be ideal. I'm, I'm sorry to say you're not wrong because it's yeah. not the type of music anybody wants to hear on Broadway anymore. Well, that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be That's absolutely, completely ideal for City Center Encores. Yes, indeed. It and, really would because yeah. the, bo the book is very problematic. I do believe there is a solution to that book, but uh, mm -hmm. nevertheless, um, there's no point in it because it's it's a golden age score. Right, mm -hmm. right. But uh, thank God we have that album because it's really, yes, indeed. Really it worked hard to get that album. That was this was the first time that mm. they went. What is it called? Bratislaw. Um, when they went overseas oh, to uh, yeah. that orchestra, that's the first time that ever happened. And all that music was um, recorded there. And then uh, they had the people come in and uh, sing to it um, after it had been recorded. 
And I do believe that was the first time that ever happened. I mean, at least that's what uh, Clay Richardson, the composer um, of the show, told me. So um, really something. And uh, there's an amazing piece of material called The Baby Love Miracle Show, which goes on for about 13 minutes. And uh, while Karen Morrow is amazing, I have to tell you that the first time I saw it in Providence, Rhode Island, Elaine Stritch was in Providence, Rhode Island doing yeah. that song. Who expect to find her there? But she did it. <laughs> All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Napkin folded under your chin. I'm a rat, but when you play... My mind is a million miles away All I ever think about is bluesies Beautiful, exotic kind of bluesies Inside my brain, they sure can raise cane I watch them Sundays, hoochie-coochin' in their undies Every night I see parades of bluesies Imaginary harems full of doozies Lying on my Davenport, I pucker up and watch them slam. Jump that I am, and I am. If I ever touched a floozy, wonder what she'd do. Ah, she'd grab me by the collar door and slam. Wham! And she'd holler, stinky, ugly, good for nothing. Stinky, ugly, good for nothing. Scram, am, scram, scram. Tell just who's a floozy right off Temptation is impossible to fight off Inside my head They climb in my bed In secret rooms I tiptoe barefoot over naked bazoom